Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Series entitled Signs, and it seems somewhat obligatory to at least give a nod, so. Okay, God, you want me to talk to you? What should I do? Give me a signal. Oh, I need your guidance, Lord. Please send me a sign. Oh, what's this Joker doing now? Okay. All right. I'll try it your way. All right, Lord. I need a miracle. I'm desperate. I need your help, Lord. Please, reach into my life. Uh, what the heck? Yeah. I got you. For those of you that have followed the film, you know that right after this, immediately, the uh, next thing is he gets a text. And you realize later it's from God, but his response is, don't know you, wouldn't call you back if it did, and tosses it out. So multiple attempts, and while I'm not trying to present um, Bruce Almighty as a treatise in theology, um, <laughs> there are a few points that are captured. One is, you know, he's requesting signs, but ignores everything that comes up uh, and directions that are, that are offered to him at every point. Wants God to intercede in his life, and God does with a pothole. <laughs> Not exactly the way that he wanted God to intercede. What we're dealing with today is signs taken a little bit deeper, and I know that the Bolton Prize says that this is entitled Signs of Deception. And that's true, but there are some messages that take a little bit of a life of their own uh, after certain other things have been designated. So while that still holds in certain ways, I would rather have this said today to be signs of life. Signs of life. 
But let's touch on the deceit part for a moment. Deceit is an attempt to, uh, to deceive someone or to lead them into error. It's any declaration, artifice, or practice which misleads another or causes him or, to, him or her to believe what is false. A contrivance to entrap, a wily device, a fraud. As we get into this conversation today, I'm going to have to first tell you a story to give you the context behind a key aspect of what we're going to be discussing today. So let's begin there. There's a world-famous um, opera singer. Her name is Alice Alquist. She's just been murdered at her home. The perpetrator left without the jewels for which he had killed her. He was interrupted by Paula, Alice's 14-year-old niece, who had been living with Alice since Paula's mother had died years ago, and she was being raised by her Aunt Alice. After Alice is murdered, Paula is sent away from the home in London to study over in Italy to become an opera star herself. It was in her genes. She had the DNA to be an incredible vocalist on the world stage. Years later, as Paula has now matured, she meets Gregory Anton, a pianist. He sweeps her off her feet in a two-week whirlwind romance. After they're married, he insists that they return to London, where she has no friends. All her friends are in Italy. But he takes her back to London, and they begin to live in the long, vacant townhouse of her deceased aunt. To help calm her anxieties from being back in the place where the tragedy had occurred, Gregory suggests that they take uh, all of Alice's furnishings and material and, and all that's involved and put it up inside of an attic. And then they seal the attic off. At one point in time, um, uh, Paula becomes aware of a letter just briefly in clearing the material out of there, and it's from Sergius Bauer, some guy who was pursuing her aunt in some way. Gregory's upset over that and angry. He says it's because that she's uh, uh, of her disturbance over, over what's going on. But he pulls it from her hands, and they complete the move to the material. As time goes on, Paula seems to hear footsteps up in the attic. And when she does, she noticed that the gas lighting that was common of this time period throughout the house would flicker, almost like there was another draw off of the light, like some other place was drawing gas off. She mentions it to Gregory. Um, he dismisses it. A number of other things start to take place. She has a, a brooch that he had given her that, that she loses on a visit to the Tower of London, only to have it reappear later in her handbag. A picture that's on the wall she allegedly has removed, and he's challenging her as to why she's removed that and, and what's going on with the brooch, and, and begins to um, convey to her that she seems to have fallen into kleptomania, possibly a reaction from what had happened before. Stealing of objects, removing them, putting them away. It reaches an intense point when they're out at a dinner party and um, uh, something is taken and then is revealed to be in her possession and she gets very emotional and loud and demonstrative and so he uses that as an excuse or a reason to say we shouldn't be in public anymore, we shouldn't be around other people at any point in time. What Paul doesn't realize is that her husband, Gregory, is actually Sergius Bauer the murderer of her aunt. 
that he had swept her off her feet, brought her back to London with the intent purpose to find the jewels that he'd lost long ago and had not been able to find after the murder. Every time that Paula is hearing footsteps and the gas lighting is flickering, it's him up in the sealed-off attic who he's crawled in from another house through a skylight in, searching all of her aunt's possessions to try to find those jewels. And he has to turn on the gas lighting in order to see, which pulls a draw and makes the ones on the lower level flicker. He systematically is changing her very perception of reality. The gas lights aren't flickering, that's just in your imagination. What are you talking, the gas lights are fine. There's, it's, they're, they're flickering now, but they're not, he'll tell her. Pictures taken, other things left. Gaps of memory. Slowly, methodically, he destroys her perception of reality. This movie and story has a name. Just curious, anybody know the name of it? It's called Gaslight. It's from 1944. Why should you care about that? Let me ask you the next question. How many of you have heard the term that someone has been gaslit or they're gaslighting somebody? If you'll do a search on this, you'll find it's becoming an increasingly common phrase in today's digital world. It's particularly coined, though, in the 1960s. Gaslighting is, in psychology, referred to as a form of manipulation in which a person seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group, making them question their own memory, perception, and sanity, using persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction, and lying. Gaslighting involves attempts to destabilize the victim and delegitimize the victim's beliefs. It is most commonly used in um, romantic relationships where one person is attempting to control another person. That's why you might see someone post, yeah, my ex gaslit me or was gaslighting me for years, but I finally came out from underneath that. It was um, used as a, as a, and has been defined as a specific uh, uh, psychological manipulation uh, by manipulating small elements of their environment, insisting that they're mistaking different items. It's been used since the 60s, as I said, and it's an attempt to destroy another person's um, version of reality or perception, rather, of reality. Here's some of the warning signs of gaslighting. And this is not the intent of the communication today, but some of you may find that you're in a relationship where this is happening and you need to review very seriously that relationship. Again, that's not our express purpose today, but consider. Here's some of the items of gaslighting observed. Withholding information from the victim. That's very important. Withholding key pieces of information from a victim. Countering information to fit the abuser's perspective. Discounting information, but I saw, no, that's not important. Discounting information, using verbal abuse, usually in the form of jokes, a sharp edge of humor that's not very funny. Blocking and diverting the victim's attention from outside sources. Trivializing, minimizing the victim's worth. Undermining the victim by gradually weakening them and their thought processes. So one psychologist considers it necessary to understand the warning signs in order to begin the process of healing from it. And one other key aspect of this is that they ultimately 
seek to isolate the individuals from any outside influence and particularly from other people that they might be in relationship with that could bring a question mark to this. We talked about last week, the passage of scripture, where Jesus is encountering these religious leaders. And as he's encountering them, he says, what is it with you guys? You can tell the weather signs of what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow morning by, you know, red skies and all that stuff. But you can't seem to determine what's taking place right around you, the spiritual realities, the spiritual depths of what's taking place. He, he, he doesn't say it directly, but, but we know that 40 years after this, all of Israel is going to be devastated and destroyed, and the entire country is going to cease to exist as a nation and, and be dispersed mere decades from the time they're talking. They're discussing these things with Jesus, who is the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, and they don't have a realization of any of these things, of either the times that they're living in or who they're facing. And he says, you can tell the sky, but you can't determine the deeper spiritual things. This week he comes along here in John chapter 8, and he says, I am the light of the world. He speaks to the people once more and says, I am the light of the world if, a very giant word if, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So he's saying that everyone's in darkness, that he is a light that has entered from the outside to penetrate this darkness, to bring people to an understanding of what's going on. If they follow them, that, that they'll have life. Ironically enough, I was told just a couple of minutes before the first service that some of our team evidently replaced a number of lights that were in this rack that had been burned out for some period of time. So evidently, you over here are more enlightened than you were last week. Okay? I, on the other hand, am somewhat blinded right now, and all of you look really good. Okay? Jesus is, is invoking this sense of darkness. He goes on in his exchange with them, uh, in, going in verse 38 of chapter 8 of John, and says, I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you're following the advice of your father. Our father's Abraham, they declared, no. If you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth. Just because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we are not illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. If you want to go that far back spiritually, now you're talking. Jesus told him, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? Why can't you understand this? It's because you can't even hear me. You can't even hear me, for, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. You love that. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truly accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Spiritually, your DNA comes from another source. I want to suggest to you today that our entire planet has been gaslighted. That our perceptions, especially in this country, of reality has been increasingly shaped 
by a vicious and deceptive and murderous enemy. And this has been going on for centuries, but I would say it's increased sharply in the last several decades. Galatians chapter 3 warns that even those who are believers in God can be deceived here. It says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. These are people who had already accepted Christ, but were being led astray on some points of theology. He says, who's bewitched you? I like it in the message version. It's a little more direct. You crazy Galatians. <laughs> like you wild and crazy Christians. You crazy Galatians. Does someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it's obviously that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Something's gone out of focus. Something has benumbed your senses. Something has distracted even those who are followers of God. The politics of things today, the culture of today, the things that have entered and even been fostered at times by the church itself. All of us have a sense of confusion about the world we live in today. I, I want to give you some examples of what this is. It's not the sole purpose of it, but it's, it's an example, and, and it, it's one of the better ones, I think, just because it's so obvious. But it's become confusing even today. There was an article, uh, uh, rephrase, a... a a episode of HGTV. It's entitled Three's Not a Crowd in Colorado Springs. It's, it's putting forward in network television the first thruple. Not a couple, but a thruple. It was a married couple who uh, found another woman in a bar and became enamored, and so asked them to join their couple, and now they view themselves as all being married together as a throuple. And this was offered on HGTV. Now, for years, Christians were mocked about saying this is the very thing that could happen when marriage was, was de redefined. We were ridiculed uh, for the idea of saying that this could ever happen. It's ridiculous that, that once you've unhinged the idea of marriage between a man and a woman only, that something like this could take place. But here it is on HGTV. Put simply, if marriage is, is not the unique um, union of one man and one woman, then what's so sacred about the number two anymore, really? As, as crazy as it sounds right now, um, there's also something called sologamy. You can check it out, sologamy. It's just what it sounds. It's, it's when one marries oneself. You finally found the love of your life. <laughs> Whitney Houston was right. <laughs> you know, the greatest love of all. And, and we can laugh at that, but if you'll do a Google on that, you're going to find that there is a significant number of people that are doing this today. Why not? Do I have to fight over whether the toilet paper is put on the roll over this way or this way? Or don't have to have all little arguments or discussions. You, you, you win everything that you ever scrap about with yourself. Once marriage was unhinged, the implications go beyond that. Why can't I put one singer up here and say that they're now going to present a duet by themselves? Or put three singers up here and say, we're gonna now have a duet from these three singers. I'd like to introduce you to my twins. Here's Fred. Where's the other one? No. He's it. I want to introduce you to my twins. Fred, Harriet, 
and my other sister Harriet, um, you know, all here. These three, we can redefine it however we want to. This is just one aspect of what has been expressed and changed within our society to the point where it really doesn't have any meaning anymore whatsoever. Another issue uh, has to do with transsexuality, where individuals are now um, confused in regards to what they and who they are, that we will now translate them across into another gender. And so now we're deploying puberty blockers on children as young as seven or eight years of age. We have no idea in science what these can do to an individual. We don't know that. We do know that for the remainder of their life, they'll have to maintain that medication. There is no doctor of any ethical weight of all that I can go to and say, this arm, I feel better without it. I want you to cut it off. It's a healthy arm. I don't care. I feel better without it. There's no doctor that would commit that surgery, but they are constantly cutting off and doing other things to healthy tissue because of how someone's perceiving something. If someone is anorexic, they hate their body image. They see something that's not real, and so they will starve themselves to death. We don't indulge that and say, you know what, that's just how you feel and think, just go ahead. We sit here and say, no, there's something wrong here. There's something deeper going on that needs to be examined. We hear people taking actions like this, being celebrated left and right, but what you're not being told, what you're not hearing is the numerous studies that are coming out of individuals who have regretted that decision. Particularly men more than women, but it's women by a large margin more than men who are translating over to being male. Significantly larger percentage is doing more damage to the feminine side of our of our race than it is even to the males. But the regret that comes afterwards, and a significant portion of people who have attempted to return or um, uh, go back to the positioning that they were at before, including the very first person that ever did it within our country. You're hearing one celebrated, you're not hearing the other. You're not hearing of the deep pain that's caused from that. This is in no way to minimize anyone who struggles with these things at all. Instead, it's to say that this is part of a massive cultural deception that's being played. Radical feminists have started to react to this. There's a book entitled The uh, Female Erasure with a foreword by feminist icon Germaine Greer. She wrote, quote, men who adopt femininity may believe that they are achieving femaleness, but femaleness is a tougher destiny than you can know or guess. I agree. I'm, I'm not arguing. When I say that we had children, <laughs> my part was real simple. Right? Move it along. Femaleness is demanding and painful, she writes. Whether at Menarche, menstruation, childbed, or menopause, and born women have no choice but to deal with it, femininity is a de-sexed masquerade. Men can be as good at it and better than women, but that does not make them women. And yet people have been removed from their jobs, lost their positions, for basically saying that exact same statement. The issues of 
sexual identity, even with homosexuality and other types, have entered into the church into discussions and into disruptions. And the deception has gone even deeper there. The Church of England just recently apologized. They apologized for having made a previous statement that sex was to be within the confines of only marriage, a one man, one woman. And they apologized for making that because they knew that could make people outside of that structure feel bad. The Methodist Church is going to split over issues of sexuality. They're heading down that road that's pretty much confirmed. One, one church will affirm all fluid of gender fluidity. The other one will hold to biblical understanding of that, and they're going to split. And the main ones holding for biblical truth is not the American church. They're the ones on the trend that is going towards being gaslit. It's the African church, the Asian church, others that are holding to truth. One African theologian spoke in the United States at the 2019 Methodist Summit recently. And this is what he said to those Methodist leaders in this country. We Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. We stand with our Filipino friends, our sisters and brothers in Europe and Russia, with our allies in America, farmers in Zambia, tech workers in Nairobi, Sunday school teachers in Nigeria, biblical scholars in Liberia, pastors in the Congo, United Methodist women in Cote d'Ivoire, and thousands of other United Methodists all across Africa who have no compelling reasons for changing our sexual ethics, our teachings on marriage, our ordination standards. We are grounded in God's word and the gracious and clear teachings of our church. Oh, on that we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will take the road that leads to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I like that guy. Why do I use this as one of only a multiple number of examples that are being done for our deception and misleading? In part because sexuality is such a baseline of identity in determining not only who we are, but how others see us and how we see ourselves. If this point can be confused or distorted, then it makes everything else possible. If the gas is not flickering and I can see it and observe it, and I'm saying it's flickering, but I can be convinced, no, it's burning strong and bright, there's no problem. If that aspect that lights up the rest of my reality can be, can be misconstrued, then everything else can fall. If those things that are so obvious and baseline, then everything else is possible. None of this is meant to be an attack at all on those that are caught in it, not at all. It has to do with those of us in this room today and where our allegiances lie and what truth is and what is deeper, what our very lives are built upon. Back in 1948, I think it was, there was an uh, um, incredible uh, creative producer. I'm not going to ask how many of you remember a guy named Alan Funt, because it's going to push you right into a generational space that the rest of the herd will cut you off, okay? <laughs> Alan Funt, though, um, you may have, even if you're uh, not of a certain generation, uh, have heard of Candid Camera. And they would set up the cameras to observe people without them being aware they were being observed. And one of the, the, the most significant ones they did involved an elevator. The unsuspecting person 
not knowing there's cameras and other people are in on this, walks into the elevator, and what do you do? You walk into the elevator, and what do you do? You turn around, you face the door. That's where you're going to go out, right? That's where other people are coming in. The next floor down, two people get on, but when they get on, they face him. (laughs) Next floor down, two more people get on, and they also face him. By the time they get to the bottom floor of this multi-story event, this guy has turned around and is facing the wall. That's the impact that they showed of peer pressure. Next time you're on an elevator, (laughs) it is ironic though, because like a lot of our culture, they're coming and they're facing a dead end that's not going anywhere, unaware of the opportunity for an exit that arrives behind them. We need to be aware of the degree to which we are being deceived and being being manipulated every single day in so many different ways. You crazy Galatians. Who's put a hex on you? Who has confused you? Who has misled you? Who is having you challenge your very perception of reality? What is true and what is false? Who's isolating you, separating you off in a way that you can't hear anything else or see anything else? It's in this context of an entire world that has been treated this way that Jesus enters into as God himself present to change this. In chapter 8, near the last end of that passage, in verse 58, he says to them, truly, truly, I want to get this across here, not just this is true, but truly, truly, really, really, I say to you, as they're challenging his lineage, before Abraham was, who you value so highly as a friend of God, before Abraham was, I am. They immediately knew what he was saying because they tried to kill him then they realized that not only was he just saying, I'm older than Abraham, that I existed before Abraham, that would just be like, you're an idiot. He's saying, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses a phrase that was directly linked to the most profound expressions of the nature and presence of God at the burning bush with Moses. When Moses says, who should I say sends me? Just say, I am. Translates out as Yahweh has sent you. And so they know he's sitting here and saying, before Abraham was, I am God. I am who I am. For those of you who have been gaslit and deceived to say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's just a really gay teacher. He never claimed that. Thomas says, my God and my Savior. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He goes on further in John chapter 14, verse 6, as the book of John progresses and says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. I'm trying to penetrate this darkness, this, this, this vindictive person who has led you astray to show you life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He goes on in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, he's saying to his Father, the only true God in prayer, he's saying, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All this is pointing inexorably to one direction and one person. We've all been in this place of darkness 
And Christ comes to enter into this world to overcome the deception and all the, the distractions, everything that has been attempted to make us question the very reality that we're in. And this is why I find the story of Gaslight, the original story, so interesting because you see what actually finally saves or rescues Paula locked in this deception, increasingly thinking she's going insane on the most basic issues. The one who's most intimate to her, misleading her and murderous in his intent, is that at one point in time she encounters a detective Cameron, a detective, a man who's very familiar with lies and deception, whose job is to determine truth and to bring forth justice. And as the relationship develops, at one point in time, he's in the house with her when the lights flicker, and she's like twitching, realizing they're not, they're not really flickering. He's like, no, they're flickering. Something else is drawing off the light. Something else, there's footsteps over top. What? No, those aren't footsteps. Those, those are not footsteps. Yes, those are footsteps. That gaslight is flickering. You are not crazy. There is something else going on. In the same way that Inspector Brian Cameron of Scotland Yard enters into her world and brings her to the truth and reality, in the same way Christ has entered into ours. He's attempting to give us an understanding of what is true. And one of the sad things about Paul is that she really was a world-class singer. And one part in the, in the, in the story, uh, she's practicing in Italy, and the guy who's practicing with her and training her is saying, you're such, you are a world-class, you're great, but now something's throwing you off. What is it? Not realizing the relationship with Gregory has started. Gregory not only took her away from friends and family, not only isolated her, not only messed with her very perception of reality, he stole her voice. He stole her voice. And so she loses the opportunity to be that world-class singer. The deceiver will influence you and me. He will cause you to stand in the wrong direction when you should be standing in the right direction. He'll sever you from others that would possibly show you the truth, isolate you in an abusive relationship, and his purpose is to lie, steal, and kill. This was supposed to be called signs of deception, but it's really signs of life because Jesus Christ says, I came that there might be life. And so do we still seek Christ in the midst of all these things? Is there a life in you or have you been so seduced that you're in the process of losing your voice? There are trendier songs today than what we would have had past. And I like the new worship songs. I really enjoy There's a number of them that are really great, but there's been some debate as to whether they haven't lost some of their theological depth going for rhyme and for, for flow rather than some of the depth that's there. And, and we, we found so many of our, our, our worship leaders are in their 20s or 30s, which is fantastic, I think. But we look to them then for our spiritual depth, and so it's been shaking a lot of, of millennials' mindset when some of these icons in the worship realm, even from Hillsong and other ones, are falling from their face saying, I don't believe anymore. I, I don't know what I believe. And, and it's clear that they've fallen into some degree of deception. Jesus or, or, or Paul sitting here and saying in Galatians, you crazy Galatians, it's clear that, that, that you've lost focus in your lives, that you're no longer focusing in on Christ. I don't have any problem with, with young worship leaders at all. I like them. 
I don't have a problem with, with anything, but I, I'm not sure I trust any generation. When I was in my 20s, I, as I said last week, I wasn't looking to another 16-year-old to learn how to drive, and I, I'd never trust a 20-something. In my 30s, I didn't trust 30-somethings. I got, I'm, by the time I get my 90s, I'm definitely not going to trust the people in their 90s. They're crazy. <laughs> Do we... Are we aware to the degree to which we have been held captive? Are we aware to the degree to which there's been this constant sense of warping of perception on the most basic, obvious issues, and we're accepting it? Where the culture has pressed us so much that, that we refuse to turn around and face them, we'd rather go with it. Where our voice has been stifled, that even in our songs and even in our worship, maybe, that we find ourselves sliding over in a way without even realization. One of the worst moments I ever had in this church was after 9-11 when I was in my office preparing for Sunday and on Saturday there was a simulcast. All the churches in the country were in the simulcast and so people were in the year at that time and, and it started off as, as, as scripture and everything else and people were worshiping and there was a worship songs being played and then at one point in time, somewhere the music shifted into patriotic songs and aircraft carriers and fighter jets and people were still standing with their hands up raised and I'm sitting there going, what are you doing? Somehow, without even realizing it, we just slide right over. Instead of holding the things that were meant for God alone. I've tried to, to teach my own sons when we'd watch movies, I'd sit here and say, see that? See that? They've placed that product there. It's called product placement. And that way they're hoping you'll buy that product. So this day now, as my adult sons, we sit and watch a movie. Yeah, you know, Tony Stark's eating a Burger King. Ah, Dad, see that? Product placement. They're trying to sell us Burger King. I'm like, good on you. Want to go get a burger? <laughs> Anywhere but Burger King. Be aware of who's trying to sell you things, who's trying to isolate you, push back. Those who are trying to stifle your voice, who are trying to mislead you, mean nothing but disaster for you. And it's not individuals, it's the spirit behind those things. It's not one political party. That's the spirit behind all politics and division. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to join me on a song. And it's one of the old hymns. Some of the new ones are great. I, I love them. I, I really love them a lot. But there's something about some of the old ones that they were just rooted. Their main purpose wasn't trying to be popular or get a hook or to sell something. It was strictly an expression of their worship and of their theology. This one I always tend to think of is, is called, um, my, uh, I think of it as On Christ the Solid Rock. But that's not the name of the song. The song is, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. My Hope is Built on Nothing Less than Jesus Christ. His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Whatever structure, I don't trust, no matter how good looking and sweet and great it is, I don't trust it. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. On all other ground a sinking stand. So this morning, as as part of this gathering today, I'm gonna ask you to stand. I'm going to ask as, a, as an act of affirmation and worship today. Recognizing that we, 
are in a world that is severely gaslit. <laughs> Maybe we've gotten to the point where, where we're just not sure what's real or what's not anymore. And her voice is slowly, quietly dropped down to a whisper. In this moment, as the church, let's regain that voice, not in anger, not in conflict, not having to tear something or someone else down, but in lifting up the one name that really matters, the one who came to bring us light and life, the one who came to rescue us from the abuse of the deceiver to infuse in us a DNA that is God the Father and to remove from us the DNA of our Father. We stand faultless not because of our own grace or ability, but strictly by Christ. Christians should be the most humble, the most gentle of people. As you leave here today and as you walk into this world that is so deceived, including the church itself. Don't be quick to point the finger, but, but hold on to the truth and reality. Hold on to your sanity. Hold on to what is real. Keep your focus on Christ. Keep it grounded in the scripture. Don't let yourself be isolated from those that could encourage and strengthen you. There'll be those available up front here if you want to come forward for prayer as we close today. And I'm going to leave you with one final thing from some guy named C.S. Lewis. He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And the same thing with Christ. It's by his light and by his life that we understand everything else in that context. Don't lose sight of it. You crazy Christians, don't lose sight of it. Okay. Father, I thank you for your grace. And Lord, we, we come against those things of deception within our own life that have bent and, and attempted to, to warp our own identity. Lord, root us in Scripture. Root us in your reality. Let our eyes be clear. Give us our voice and let that voice be strong, but let it be gentle and loving to draw others to you, Lord, in winsome fashion. We pray for this country. We pray for the church around the world, especially for those that are holding strong, even in other countries. Guide us in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.